Jodip Prabhu and Peter Williamson, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today. You have, over the winter months, been having correspondence from China and India, one to the other, talking about the Western economies as opposed to the economies of India and China. Peter, let's begin with you. I know that, that you have provocatively said that, that you think the West could become a museum for the 20th century. Why? Well, I don't think that's inevitable, but I think a lot of people underestimate the speed with which technology and innovation is moving in China and India. And if we don't adjust the way we think about innovation, the way we think about linking our innovation efforts with those in other countries, I think we will become a kind of uh, a Disneyland uh, that uh, people go and see uh, to look at what the technology was in the past. You said it's not a matter of catch-up, it's leapfrog, again, a big adjective. Yes, well, I think if you look at some industries in India and China, take the, the green energy industry in China, take the drug development in India, which is used biotechnology probably more aggressively than in the West, or uh, even, and this will probably come as a surprise to you, the Internet in China is actually in many applications ahead of the West. So we shouldn't think it's just a matter of them catching up. Uh, they have the ability to use the latest technology. They don't have to go through the cycles that we went through. They can leapfrog directly to uh, the cutting edge or, or even into the future. And so what examples have we got of, of where China in particular ha has used innovation to, to leapfrog over the West? Well, you might have seen the electric car launched by uh, BYD in America recently. Uh, that has a range of 300 kilometers, and it can go from 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in 14 seconds. That's using their proprietary battery technology that they developed to... Uh, use in things like mobile phones and so uh, their idea is why try to compete with the West on the internal combustion engine, why don't we leapfrog into electric cars so, so that's one, uh, one interesting example. Well let's just turn to you Jadeep uh, because I, I know that you disagree with Peter on the strength of the innovation drive in India and China and, and the outcomes for the West. Why is that? Well, I, <clears throat> I agree with uh, Peter that there is significant innovation happening in China and India, and often it's not technological. And, of course, there are differences between China and India as well. Often it's the use of existing technology to meet existing needs that have been unmet, in a way, by uh, current products and services in a very affordable manner. I think that's the particular expertise that's that, that both multinationals and domestic companies are developing in the context of India and China that has the most implications, not only for those markets, but elsewhere. Where, I, where we perhaps disagree, or we agree to disagree, is on what the impact of that innovation will be on the West. And I tend to think that, I'm somewhat optimistic, that actually that will help the West and not threaten it. And in terms of, of helping the West, why? Is it the, the sort of research and, and development innovation drive that, that actually, if the West wants to compete in, it can benefit from? Absolutely. So one tangible way in which I believe that the innovation that's happening in India and China benefits the West is uh, through the, the simple fact that many of the 
much of the activity in India and China in the innovation space is led by Western multinationals. This is a way in which for them to get access to the large pool of talent that exists in these countries, um, which in the, in eventually finds its way back to Western consumers through new products and services, often at perhaps a reduced uh, cost to the Western consumer. So there is that big advantage to uh, the West. Um, I also think that, especially in this area of affordable innovation that both Peter and I have been talking about, um, the West can benefit. Um, maybe not in the first instance, because in the first instance, these innovations are intended for the local markets in India and China. But they have a way of finding that, their way back to, to the West. And Peter gives this example of uh, GE's innovation in the area of ECG machines. General Electric. Uh, General Electric's uh, ECG machine that was developed specifically for the Indian market, um, taking into account the fact that their existing machines were very large, immovable, and quite expensive, which limited their use to cities. And GE General Electric very quickly realized that if they were going to be useful to the Indian mass market, which is in the rural hinterland, they would have to make these compact, reliable, and cheap. So they made uh, such an ECG machine, which was a tenth of the cost of the existing ones and a fifth of the weight. It was successful in India, then in China, and now has FDA approval for introduction into the U.S. So I think that's another concrete way in which the West can benefit. Peter, were you surprised by the, the strength of Jadeep's innovation argument in, in the sense that growth innovation is good for all. You don't say it's just good for one set of economies and not for another. Well, I think it's good for some in those economies, and I completely agree with Jadeep that uh, it's probably good for consumers, it's probably good for multinationals who are uh, tapping into the innovation and cost capabilities of these markets, but I'm not sure it's good for workers in the West because... I think we have this uh, view that it's okay for India and China to do the low-end uh, basic kind of activities, but we're going to compete in the high end, and now we find that actually they're also able to compete strongly in innovation and high technology, uh, perhaps in a different way, and that's something we might come back to later as to how to actually get a benefit out of this. But I think in the first instance it is a threat to highly paid, not to say expensive, workers in uh, Western markets. And, and, and do you think, it, in fact, then, in terms of those Western markets, they mustn't be defeatist? No, well, I think uh, one thing we probably can agree on, and Jadip might want to say more about this, is I think we need to think, how do we connect our innovation, the things that we are good at, uh, with this kind of uh, cost innovation, ability to apply technology as uh, the ECG example in a more compact, cost-effective form, if we could pull those two sides of the technological coin together, maybe the world and both sides can benefit from this. And that is something that, that you indeed pointed out in the correspondence, yeah. Jadeep, that, that, that actually, you know, we are there, the Western firms are there yeah. in these innovation markets. Yeah. I think, I mean, the Western firms are leading this whole, uh, uh, I would say they're, 
they're leading this drive. Um, there are Indian firms. I know India better than China, and and Peter will tell us the Chinese examples. I know Indian firms are also quite good at this. I mean, Tata's the Tata Group is an example with the Nano, um, but it's not just the big Indian companies. I happen to know uh, the family that's introduced the G Wiz electric car. Now that's not particularly an affordable car at the moment, but it's an interesting innovation which looks at uh, important aspects of uh, sustainability and so on. Um, so Western companies are at the forefront, I would say, of this in uh, in India, and they bring that knowledge uh, and the fruits of that activity back to the West, to Western markets. And, and then I, I know that you you also said that the, you know the West services end up in, in India and China too, particularly China. So I mean that was the sort of I guess you know somewhat of, of a cliche that in the 90s uh, China was the uh, factory of the world and India was the back office and I think those cliches are breaking down in a in a way I mean uh, China is doing very well in software and so forth and India is increasingly you know catching up in some areas of manufacturing so um, yes there is the globalization of services in fact the whole distinction between products and services I think is increasingly breaking down. Services have important elements that are tangible and have technology in them, and you know tangible products have service elements. And I think we're seeing the breaking down of the distinction between products and services, and the breaking down between Western and you know developing economies in in the, in, the, in the globalization of innovation. Peter, when you wrote this correspondence, you were in Beijing. Jadeep was in Bangalore, um, and we were in snow uh, in in Cambridge. But, but one of the things you pointed out was just what you were witnessing in terms of, of the firms that you were seeing, and indeed witnessing it at a time when uh, China is about to overtake Japan as the second largest economy in the world. Yes, I mean the kind of innovation we see there is not just this. Uh, a cliche again of copying, uh, imitating. Um, I visited a company uh, in Hunan province, which is one of the more western provinces of China, called Broad Air Conditioning. And what they have done is said we perhaps should stop thinking about only powering air conditioning plants with electricity. We should use waste heat from power stations, or we should use gas. And they have developed a technology which is way more efficient in in air conditioning or actually using heat that would otherwise go to waste and turn it into cooling. Uh, and, and that kind of thinking about different ways of applying technology, not always being on the tram tracks of saying we must incrementally improve uh, the, the particular way we've been considering technology, but thinking a bit more out of the box. And that's one of the things that strikes me when I go to China, and I'm sure the same thing as you see in, in India. And, and, you know, the West only, or Britain, only just pulling itself out of recession at a time when, you know, China is having this still large growth. That must strike you as well, because don't you want to say to the West, well, you know, if you're going to get into these markets, get into them sooner rather than later. Come on, compete. Well, I think the aftermath of the financial crisis has really been a tipping point here, that for many years, people like Chadi and myself have said, you know, uh, the East is going to be where the growth is. But now you see that on the front of the Financial Times, on the front of the Wall Street Journal, people saying, look, there's a huge amount of rebalancing has to happen in the US and Europe, and the growth is going to really go ahead uh, in the East, and therefore we should think how we tap into that. I, I think the way to consider this is 
to say that we should be trying to connect the different innovation strengths of different places. So uh, Jadid mentioned uh, the software area. India tends to be strong in the traditional software and IT service. Uh, China tends to be strong in embedded software that goes inside pieces of equipment uh, uh, because of the link with the manufacturing. And we've got some very interesting technology here in Cambridge that is path-breaking in certain areas. Um, And I think if you combine those together, we might actually be able to find a win-win situation here. Jadeep, do you agree? Particularly, let's pick up on one thing Peter said there, which was about the the innovation not being cheap, low-quality goods anymore, because, of course, that acquisition was levelled at India too. No, I agree with a lot of what Peter just said. I mean, just let's take that one point. Um, There's a a very highly regarded... uh, scientist and technocrat in India, uh, Dr. Mashelkar, who's actually visiting here in June. And he has a phrase for this approach to innovation in India. He calls it more for less for more. That's more value for less cost for more people. And I think in India and China, by by virtue of the environment in which companies operate and entrepreneurs operate, there is this pressure to constantly think out of the box, as Peter said. It's not just pushing the technological frontiers for the sake of pushing the technological frontiers. It's constantly about how can you use technology that exists to deliver more value at less cost for more people. Um, and I think that that is the big contribution that innovation that's happening in India and China has for the West. I also agree with Peter that actually the big opportunity here is to solve what are essentially global problems now around resources, the scarcity of resources. In the West, after the recession, there's scarce, increasing scarcity in terms of financial resources and budgets. But, but in India and China, where the markets are growing, there are, there is also scarcity of resources. And in fact, that very growth is going to uh, put additional pressure on the resources that there are in energy, for instance, or water, uh, land, and so forth. So it's, I think the world as a whole has got to think very hard about trying to get more for less. We've done this, of course, for centuries, but particularly so now, more for less for more people, because there are just simply more people joining the middle classes and are more demanding and so forth. So exploiting the unique capabilities of different regions to solve these global problems is going to be a big uh, thing of the future where everyone could benefit potentially. Okay, well, let's just round off this conversation with those two provocative comments we began with, uh, uh, Peter's, which which is the the leapfrog one and, you know, uh, the West becoming a museum for the 21st century. Do you still agree after all this correspondence? Well, I think uh, we agree on many things about uh, where the potential is, what's happening in innovation in other places, but I guess I'm somewhat pessimistic about the West's ability to really embrace the kind of things Jadid was talking about, and I fear that they may start to look inward and become protectionist, and therefore that there will be a negative spiral uh, is at risk from this uh, development. There is always that risk. I would tend to agree with Peter. No one should be complacent. I mean, when one thinks about these big shifts in economic prosperity and so forth, you know, India and China were really 
led the world in the 17th century, right up to the probably the end of the 18th century as well. They accounted for a large part of world trade and GDP. And of course, we know what happened to them in the intervening period. A lot of that was probably because of insularity, maybe complacence, inertia, whereas the West was dynamic and outward looking and willing to learn and there was competition and so forth. And of course, uh, the West, uh, the West superiority over the last hundred years could end up uh, in complacency and inertia and uh, insularity and protectionism. And if that happened, then of course the West, the West might lose out as a consequence of that. How, yeah. In that case, I think we're going to have to leave uh, two professors agreeing on many things, but, but disagreeing too on the strengths and the West's ability to rally its resources and compete. Uh, Jeudi Prabhu, Professor Peter Williamson, thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today. Thank you, a pleasure. A pleasure here too, thanks.